All right, good morning, Mercy House. Good morning. Hey, good response. Glad you guys are with us. I want to welcome you here today. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. I do want to just say thank you to Jake. I, he, I think he's downstairs right now doing some elder stuff, but he gave me a break last week, which was very much uh, appreciated and needed. And um, you guys don't see the elders a lot, but they do a lot of work. Um, they've been carrying a lot of weight over these past few months. So I did want to just publicly uh, appreciate them, thank them for all the ways that they've supported me and our family as we embark on this new season of our lives um, and all the prayer and conversations that go into all the things that they do on a weekly basis. So they're literally downstairs doing elder stuff right now. So thankful for them. Um, but I'm here. I'm rested. I've got a lot of energy right now, so you better buckle up because we're going for it. Um, we're almost two-thirds of the way through our sermon series this fall. Um, and so if you've been along with us, or if you haven't, here's like the, the one-sentence summary. Uh, we're going through the Songs of Ascents, which are 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Uh, and we're remembering that these are the psalms that the Israelites would have sung uh, on their multiple trips to Jerusalem every single year. And so Jerusalem for them was home. It was home in every sense of the word. They experienced true peace, true shalom uh, with God and with one another. Uh, and, and they would come and they would worship together as a community, and they really would just rally alongside one another um, around this central core identity for them as a nation, which was their citizenship as members of God's family. And so that's what it meant for them to come home to Jerusalem every single year. And one of the things that I think that uh, I hope that you are getting out of this sermon series as we walk through each and every one of these psalms every single week is that you're seeing how they tell a consistent story of the gospel throughout all of them. That, that there is a cohesive narrative throughout the entire Bible from start to finish. And it's not a coincidence that, that things are kind of falling into place and starting to make sense on, on a grander scale. It's not uh, us uh, doing some sort of cutting and pasting of Scripture. We're not performing some sort of grammatical wizardry or doing some sort of like spiritual gymnastics on Sunday where we finally can like land and stick the landing on the gospel and on Jesus each week as we stand here and preach. And this is something that we see in Scripture. Jesus talks about this himself in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And so the scriptures, the Bible as we have it, is infinitely valuable to us today. And it's not just because of the words that they say, but who the words point toward. So if you're reading the Bible, if you read Genesis, and, and what you see is just a, a, a story about how the world was created and how that world fell into sin, you're actually missing a point of Genesis. If you're reading Exodus and you see lists of rules and some supernatural miracles, you're missing the point of Exodus. If we read First and Second Samuel and we're just seeing dramatic stories of these epic battles, if we read the book of Proverbs and just see some reasonable wisdom to leave, live our lives by, if we're lamenting with Solomon and the hevel and the meaninglessness of life under the sun as we read Ecclesiastes, we're actually missing the purpose of all of these books. And if you read the Psalms, it's just some poetic musings that can help us navigate this highly emotional experience and journey that is being human under the sun, we're missing the point that all Scripture bears witness to Jesus Christ, and it communicates a grand narrative of God's redemption of His people. So I hope, Mercy House, that you've been made very abundantly clear that this is the truth as we read through the Bible. 
And that's primarily my job as a preacher, as a teacher of God's Word. Not to give a history lesson on a Sunday morning, not to just provide some philosophical arguments or make us as a community more moral or, or more well-behaved. Like my goal as I sit down and read and prayerfully research and write these sermons is to help illuminate the text and reveal Christ to you and ultimately to help you fall more deeply in love with Him. For you, to, for you to be able to see and for you to hear and even in some ways feel how much God loves you, how much he wants a relationship with you, and then for all of us as a community to, to be able to respond to that love and that desire for a relationship in appropriate ways that are laid out for us in God's word. And so I hope and pray that this has been your, your experience so far in the songs of ascents as we've gone through them. And, and that you're learning, if you, if you didn't know already, that the Psalms have incredible depth to them, just like all other parts of Scripture as they point to Christ, the risen Messiah. And so with that, let's jump into Psalm 128, starting in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Verse 1 is going to set the theme for this entire song. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. Uh, the three main concepts I think we need to break down in this verse are, are the words uh, blessed, this idea of fearing the Lord, and also walking in his ways. So first, the word blessed. What does that mean to be blessed? This is one of those words that could be thrown around, and, and we need to really hammer down what it means. In this context, the word in Hebrew is actually interchangeable with the word happiness. It communicates having a sense of satisfaction, having a fullness of heart, experiencing abundance. And what the Psalter is getting at here is actually the secret to true happiness. I mean, isn't that what we all want? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about joy, this idea that the world around us is offering us plenty of, of, of ways through infomercials, through blog posts, through TikToks about how we can increase our happiness, how we can feel more satisfied and experience more fullness of, of heart in our day-to-day -day lives. And this isn't really meant to be a trick question, whether or not you want to increase your happiness. Like, this isn't something where you're supposed to feel bad about whether or not you want more happiness or you want more misery in your life. Because if you were given the opportunity to choose between the two, you ought to choose happiness. And what I'm trying to communicate is that it's not inherently selfish or sinful to desire happiness. Just like there's no shame in desiring to increase the joy in our lives, which we talked about two week, weeks ago. To, to want to experience more satisfaction and fullness. Now, there are shortcuts to happiness that can hurt others, that can hurt us, that lead to a counterfeit sense of happiness that's very fleeting, and we're going to talk about that later. But right here, the Psalter is speaking of experiencing blessing and happiness in a very, very good way. So what is the secret to true happiness? We ought to be on the edge of our seats here, ladies and gentlemen, because the Bible is about to weigh in on one of the most highly trending topics in all of human history. So look at verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And the Psalter lays out a way to position ourselves to experience blessing and happiness, and it's through fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. So what does that mean? Because this seems almost too simple to be true. Well, let's start with fear of the Lord. The word fear, I think, can be confusing these days, especially today on Halloween. 
The fear that the Psalter is referring to here is not one of terror or one of horror. He's not talking about us being simply scared of God. The word fear here is referencing to a healthy type of fear, one that is rooted in a level of respect and and holy reverence. So, So when your brain comprehends that something or someone requires a bit of caution as you interact with it. Chloe was about three and a half years old, uh, and she just turned six yesterday. So uh, a couple years ago, we were hanging around our house on a Saturday afternoon, and we were just cuddling up on the couch, uh, and all of a sudden, we hear, like, talking coming out of my wife Caitlin's phone, which is on the other side of the room on the coffee table. We're like, oh, that's really strange. So she goes over there, and and she puts it on speaker, and we realize that it's actually a a police dispatcher. And they're like, please state your emergency for us. And we're, like, frantically being, like, we're a little confused. Like, oh, there's no emergency and it probably sounds way worse than it is because we were also flustered and confused as to like why the phone randomly called 911, but it did. And so, of course, as per their policy, uh, they let us know that a police cruiser was on their way over to our house, and we were like, no, 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 it's okay, and they like hung up on us, right? And that was the day that we learned that you could uh, actually call 911 from your Apple Watch, which Chloe did as she was playing with Caitlin's Apple Watch on the couch there. So a few minutes later, there's a heavy knock on the door, boom, boom, boom. And we're like, hey, Chloe, go get the door. Like, this is your mess. You got you, you to gotta deal with this, baby. And so she opens the door, and a Granby police officer is standing there, and they're filling the whole frame of the door, and Chloe, like, staggers back, right? And this was the first time that Chloe had seen a police officer in person. And I threw her under the bus right away. I was like, that girl called 911. It was her fault. She did it. And the police officer was very gracious. He, he smiled, uh, and, and he actually knelt down and, and, and looked at Chloe, uh, who's like, you know, kind of like slowly still trying to like walk back and pretend like she's not seen. And there's a moment where the police officer said, we only dial 911 when there's an emergency. And he was very stern about that. Then he said, but if there is one and you call us, someone like me will come and we will help you. It was like this kind of an epic, beautiful moment. Again, this was the first time Chloe had ever seen a police officer before in person. And so we had a follow-up conversation with her just to say, hey, these are the people that are here to help us when we're in trouble. It's their job to protect us. But you could tell that that experience was a little, like, scary for her, right? It was even a little nerve-wracking for Caitlin and I as this police officer was standing in the threshold of our door. Now, there wasn't terror There wasn't like a scream-inducing horror, but there was a healthy level, a healthy dose of respect and reverence for this person who had power and authority. That's the type of fear that the psalmist is getting at here in verse 1, as he's saying, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. That's not to say blessed is everyone who is terrified of the Lord, thinks that the Lord is going to hurt them, or blessed is everyone who is horrified by the Lord, but blessed is everyone who has a reverence and a deep respect for the holy God of the universe. Now, practically, this means approaching God with humility and sensitivity to who he is as an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly righteous creator of everything. It means adjusting ourselves to reflect the seriousness of God. And we do this in in, in minor ways all the time, even with other human beings. When someone is is in a position of authority or power over us, we usually, maybe we ought to, it's in our best interest to, to be respectful of them. That's why in certain situations we say, Your Honor, when we refer to a judge in court. Why we say, Yes, sir, or or, No, ma'am. 
or even in some cultures, physically lowering ourselves, uh, decreasing our, our posture and our stature as a form of reverence for that other person. And so if we do this on a strictly human level, how much more ought we do this when there is a divine difference between the God and creator of the universe and us as the created people? We see this in places like Proverbs chapter 28. In verse 14, it says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. See, in this verse, we're seeing that same word and even the same concept of happiness and fullness coming to those who fear and have reverence for the Lord. But this verse is helpful because it shows us what the opposite of reverence for God looks like. It says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but... Whoever hardens his heart. See, the opposite of fearing God and having a reverence for God is a hardening of our hearts. It's being cold and unreceptive of him. Instead of lowering our posture, we will, in some, like, uh, in some way, we're, we're like, crossing our arms and we're just shrugging our shoulders. Instead of getting up out of respect, we're, we're lounging with our feet up. In a conversation, instead of having that holy reverence, uh, instead of listening and hearing from God, we're doing the equivalent of just taking out our phones and, and browsing whatever is there. And see, this idea is something that John Piper communicates. He, he says, fearing God is corresponding with humility and lowliness and sensitivity of heart. The sheer majesty of God, as well as the holiness and justice and power and wrath of God, cannot be approached in a cavalier spirit. It would be insane to think we can just stroll up to the creator of the universe and have a cavalier spirit. We are blind if we think we can do that without trembling. A part of being blessed and finding happiness is having a healthy fear of God. Because what a healthy fear of God means is that we have a healthy understanding of who God is. Let me put it this way. If God is just a distant, grumpy old man away in the clouds, like there's no reason to fear that type of God. If he's a vague and nebulous spiritual feeling or vibe, you wouldn't need to fear that. But if you see him and you know him as an infinitely powerful, infinitely holy, yet incredibly intimate presence right here, right now in this room, not just waiting for you as you die, but living inside of you. If you follow Christ right now, someone who knows every, every single one of your thoughts, knows every single deep, dark crevice of your life, the spaces where no one else knows, if that is the God that you know, and out of that comes a, a, a level of fear and, and a level of reverence for God. But that fear and that reverence produces blessing and happiness and fullness of heart. Well, how is that? How, how does that actually work out? Well, it's because right understanding of God informs right relationship with God. When, when we realize just how infinitely grander God is, how much more infinitely awesome God is than us, while also realizing the great cost at which God paid in order to be with us in relationship, I mean, that is joy-inducing. Ladies and gentlemen, God is way outside of our league. Let me tell you what I mean. I felt a shadow of this when Caitlin and I first started dating. I thought, man, this woman is way too beautiful for me. This woman is way too cool. She's way too godly to spend time and actually like me. I actually legitimately had a conversation with Caitlin where I told her, look, 
I have feelings for you, and that means that we probably can't hang out anymore because I know you don't have feelings for me, but this is, this is going to be too hard for me. I don't think we can just be friends. Uh, and, and, and that was the conversation. And I was blown away when Caitlin was like, actually, I like you. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? I was, I was flabbergasted. Like, I had asked all of my brothers, my friends, to like, hey, pray for me, man. Like, I'm about to get my heart ripped out. Like, this was the last thing that I expected. I was like, you like me? It's like, jackpot. Like, this is awesome. See, like, when you learn that someone way outside of your league likes you, let me tell you, like, that is blessing. That produces happiness and fullness of heart. So consider that God is infinitely out of your league, Mercy House. And he doesn't just like you, he loves you. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't just like you because he doesn't know you yet. And you're still kind of like honeymoon phasing in your relationship where he's only seeing the best parts of who you are. Like you're still kind of on audition for him. Like he sees the absolute most vile, disgusting, shameful parts of who you are that no one else knows. Yet he still loves you. He still wants to be in relationship with you. Like it brings him joy and delight to be with you. If that reality does not produce blessing and happiness in your life, nothing, nothing will. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord because fear of God is a byproduct of having a right understanding of who God is. And having a right understanding of who God is allows us to grasp this incredible, significant reality that God actually wants to be in relationship with us. God loves me? Jackpot. That's what we see here. So fear of God, reverence, and respect for him flow naturally to obedience to him. Let me tell you what I mean. Look at the second part of the sentence in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. So God makes his ways very clear to us through his word, through the Bible. He doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves or figure out things on our own. He gives us instruction and he communicates not just rules for the sake of rules or laws for the sake of laws, but he shows us how to live as he designed it, designed life to be lived. And this is for our good. It's also for our happiness as well. This is like a parent who is raising their child. God is using his word, his holy scripture. He has given us everything that we need through his word to absolutely flourish in blessing and in happiness. But it's one thing to hear something, one thing to read it, and it's another to actually receive it and obey it. So I wasn't always uh, the best at treating my teachers and professors with, with reverence and with respect. Uh, there were many times where I would be doodling. There were many times where I would be daydreaming. There are other times when I would just be outright dreaming because I would be sleeping in class. But let me tell you, there was one class that I took that I think I had the most fear and reverence for the instructor as I'll ever have for anything. It was a pre-flight class for skydiving. And you bet I paid attention in that class. I was zeroed in with laser focus on everything that person was communicating. I didn't have a hard heart thinking, oh, this person has nothing valuable for me to say. I was hanging on every single one of their words. And so when it came time to jump out of the airplane, having a healthy amount of fear and reverence for what I was about to do and spending the day kind of walking in the way of the skydiving instructor, when they said that it was time to pull the chute, you bet that I immediately, uh, obediently pulled the, the ripcord from the side of my hip. And what was the result? It, there was joy. There, there was blessing. There was happiness that I wasn't falling to my doom 
but there is fullness of heart as we floated safely to the ground. See, the secret of blessing, the way that we set ourselves up to experience happiness and life is by having a reverence for God, but also through obedience to God. This isn't just the, the, the secret to happiness. It's actually the whole of the Christian life, is it not? Uh, it, it, this is what it means to be a Christian, to know God and to be holy as he is holy. But surely, being Christian can't be that simple. It, it, it can't be that simple to be happy. But it is. Like, that's what we're seeing right here. I think Eugene Peterson puts it really well in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says, there is a general assumption prevalent in the world that it is extremely difficult to be a Christian, but this is as far from the truth as the East is from the West. The easiest thing in the world is to be a Christian. It is hard to be a sinner. Being a Christian is what we were created for. The life of faith has the support of an entire creation and resources of a magnificent redemption. The structure of this world was created by God so we can live in it easily and happily as his children. In the course of Christian discipleship, we discover that without Christ, we are doing it the hard way, and that with Christ, we are doing it the easy way. It is not Christians who have it hard. It is non-Christians. What Peterson is getting at here is that being a Christian means having the opportunity to live in relationship with our Creator and having access to wisdom and knowledge directly from God that, that we're receiving in His Word. And not only that, but we are being supernaturally sustained and empowered to be transformed into the likeness of God through obediently walking in His ways. Being a Christian in some ways is kind of like having a skydiving instructor. Someone whose job it is to, to be training and shepherding you through the process. Someone who is literally attached to you. Like if you've ever gone tandem skydiving, they are on, awkwardly on your back like this the whole time. They are speaking into your ear. They're responsible for you. They've packed that parachute. They're attaching their own life to you. They're going to get you to the ground in one piece. And so the alternative of that is being taken up into an airplane and thrown a parachute and being told, hey, you got to figure this out on your own. But thankfully, that is not the case. And we experience true happiness in life when we rightly know God and rightly heed his instructions. Mercy House, if, if we're not feeling blessed or happy, if we're finding ourselves constantly grumpy and bitter and miserable, if we're stuck in ruts of negativity and, and just grumbling all the time, then we ought to ask ourselves if we have reverence for God and if we are obeying him in the ways that he's calling us to obey. And look, I, before you get frustrated at me and you start shutting down and hardening your heart, consider that I'm not like making this up here. This is an explicit and direct exposition of verse 1. It says, and you, if you look at it with me, blessed, again, that's interchangeable with the word happy, is everyone, so not just some people, who fears. So this idea of having reverence, a right understanding of the Lord who walks in, which is also synonymous with obedience, walking in the ways of God, walking in his ways. And so this is not to say that sadness and grief and depression can't find their way into our hearts. I don't know each and every one of you. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I'm willing to bet that there are things that are, that, that are going on in your life right now that are causing you pain, that are causing you suffering, that, and then you're experiencing that, and, and it is hard for you to 
maybe even fathom the happiness and the fullness of heart that we're seeing here. It's making it hard for you uh, to, to, for that to exist in you, to say the very least. So I don't want you to hear me saying this very naively or insensitively to where you're at. But what we need to see and what we need to know is that even in our sadness, in our grief, in our misery, even in our despair, we have access to true happiness. Not a fleeting distraction or form of escape. I'm not talking about like retail therapy or a day of self-care at the, at the spa or vegging out in front of Netflix or whatever else this world might offer to us as, as the secret to our happiness, but true happiness, which is experienced in, placing, uh, in a place of no, knowing God and having a reverence for him and worshiping him and walking in his will for our lives. See, what's beautiful about this source of happiness is that it's not circumstantial. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. It doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. It doesn't matter how you're progressing in your program, how you're performing at work, how how well your kids are behaving, or whatever other metric you would use to help you gauge what happiness looks like. True blessedness, true happiness does not require some sort of monthly subscription. It's experienced through reverence and obedience to the God of the Bible. And what we see in this psalm is that this happiness, it begins in the Christian who has this right understanding and right relationship of obedience with God, and then it radiates outward. So the rest of this psalm, it highlights other areas of our lives that are blessed when we are having right understanding and right relationship with God. It impacts our work. It impacts our spouses. It impacts our families, and it impacts our community. Look at verse 2. It says, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. One of the first things that gets blessed when we have right understanding of God and a right relationship with Him, when we have reverence for Him and we are obeying Him, is that He blesses our work. It says the labor of our hands. Now, I want this to be very clear. This isn't like a cheesy proverb that says, you know, do what you love and you'll never work the rest of your life. Have you heard that before? That's not what's being communicated here. What the psalmist is saying is that when we know God, when we walk in his ways, it allows us to experience the fruit of our labor, to be able to enjoy the product and the process of our work to find meaning, even enjoyment and satisfaction in our work that transcends what the actual content of that work is. One of the best places to to look at how God views work and how we ought to view work is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, And we did a whole sermon series on this last fall. And we see the author exploring the concept of work. And as as a king, you imagine that he has one of the better jobs that are out there, right? Uh, he, he had the resources and the power to do what he loved, and so it, it, it wouldn't feel like work. But his writing communicates otherwise. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity." So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. 
Jump down to verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here's one of the wealthiest people to have ever lived, period. One of the most powerful people on the face of the earth. And surely if there was someone who could find their dream job and feel like they're not working for a single day for the rest of their lives, it would have been him. But he couldn't do it. The labors of his hands are communicated as meaningless toil. It's vanity. It's worthless. It's a striving after the wind. See, what you learn as you read the book of Ecclesiastes is that the author is trying to find meaning and purpose under the sun, which means kind of apart from God, apart from having a right understanding of who God is, apart from walking in the ways of God. And as they're discovering, they're seeing that work apart from God, just like everything else that they experiment with, is meaningless. But when work is done with a right understanding of who God is, and it's done in faithful obedience to God, it becomes something done with an understanding that it's part of something much, much bigger than just the plate that we're scrubbing or the line of code that we're writing or the person that we're taking care of or the song that we're singing or the numbers that we're pushing. And this is what Jake really drove home last week in Psalm 127, that in God, our work is given eternal purpose and value. Apart from God, our work fades it's meaningless. It becomes forgotten. It's inconsequential. But in God, it can be used to build the eternal kingdom. And it's given value and meaning because God gives it value and meaning. So if you want to explore this more, I highly encourage you to pick up a book called Every Good Endeavor by Timothy Keller. We have a few copies that are free in the back. You can just take those. We usually give these out to our seniors who are, who are graduating and who are joining the workforce or just moving on to the next season of their lives. But it helps us understand the purpose of work. excuse me, how to enjoy it and how to understand God's purpose for it. And as a very general summary, one of the things that you see about work is that it's not about the work or the content of the work itself, but it's about our perspective of that work as we enter into it. So for those who fear God and walk in his ways, uh, we will eat the fruit of our, our labor and be blessed So when we have reverence for God in our work, when we walk in his ways as we work, we position ourselves for blessing and even happiness in our work. I think a a question that would be good to ask ourselves here is, how does our relationship with God impact our work? How does our relationship with God impact our work? See, for many of us, we, we, we might not be able to see these two things as more separate. So we might, excuse excuse me, to see that my faith is over here in, in my experience with family groups and DG, Sunday morning worship, youth group, helping downstairs with the kids. Um, and, and then my nine to five job is over here. And like, that's how I just view the world. Even for those of us in professional ministry, like those lines get blurry, but it's still really important for us to consider. And as we're considering this, if we find that our spiritual life and our relationship with God are just kind of naturally separated into two separate worlds um, from our work and, and our school life and even our ministry, that might be why we experience some dissatisfaction in our laboring. If our work is separated from God, then the only value or meaning it has is connected uh, to, to what this world would have to say about it. 
And the things that, that, that we might feel as, as being great, as, as, as we're being affirmed and encouraged in our work and the good work we're producing, but maybe on an off day, even as you progress, maybe to the top of your field and your industry, I think you start realizing, what is this all worth? What, what is this all for? Because just like the author of Ecclesiastes discovers, it doesn't matter how hard you work or how successful you are, how many accolades or accomplishments you pile up. At the end of life, you meet the same fate as everybody else. You die, and you can't take any of those things with you. Ecclesiastes is really like a crowd pleaser, for sure. But it's true. It's communicating this truth that any form of laboring or work is absolutely meaningless toil apart from God. And so I want to encourage you this morning. If you're a student, to, to see your laboring in the classroom or at the lab, as you're studying and researching, to see that as part of your spiritual life and your relationship with God. To surrender that area of your life and invite God into it in order to lead you and direct you as, as you do that work. And in that process, allowing God to give you eternal purpose and meaning to the countless hours that you're investing into your studies. Because if it's just for you, if everything you're doing in school is, is for your parents, or maybe just to keep up with whatever standard you might be trying to adhere to yourself, you will find pretty soon, if you haven't already, that it's meaningless, exhausting toil. If you're a, a professional and you work with your hands, or if you're an artist, if, if you spend your days behind a desk or behind a steering wheel, if you're spending all of your time sweeping floors and taking care of children and cooking food and, and doing laundry and mowing the lawn, don't let that work be wasted as meaningless toil. Don't miss out on the blessing of engaging the Lord in that toil and letting him infuse it with supernatural purpose, worth, and meaning. The reality is that uh, you're not the first person if you struggle with feeling like your work is meaningless. And scripture is filled with people ranging from all different types of vocations who have had to wrestle with this. We, we've seen it in scripture. Like we've got gardeners. We've got people who are cooks. We've got construction workers and, and soldiers and, and, and housekeepers and lawyers. You have accountants and bookkeepers. Joseph is a governor of Egypt. David is a shepherd. Peter was a fisherman. Luke was a doctor and Paul was a tent maker. Jesus himself was a carpenter. That was his trade. And so those who fear God and, and walk in his ways find blessing in their work. Not because they found like their, their magical vocation that speaks to their souls, but because God blesses them through it as they engage with him in it. So I pray that more of us here would seek this out in our work and experience it. Like, what a testimony that would be to the world around us if we were a community who experienced happiness and joy as we labor, not because our job is so amazing, but because Jesus has, has given it worth and meaning beyond what we're actually doing each day at work. And so this blessing that flows from a place of reverence for God and obedience to God, it extends even beyond our work. It, imp it impacts our spouses and our families. Look at verse 3. The psalmist says, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. 
We could honestly spend an entire sermon series looking at these two verses here. Uh, But here's the main gist, uh, that your personal relationship with God, as you are treating God with reverence and following him obediently, has profound impact on those who are nearest to you. One of the things that we're seeing here is that it's not just all about us. The lie that Satan would want you to believe is that your walk with God only impacts you. Man, I think we need to drag that out into the light and and really expose it for what it is. Like, there's nothing that Satan would want more than for us to think that our spiritual, like, laziness, when when we're being complacent or just outright waywardness is only hurting us. It's not. And what we see in these verses is painting a picture of how we actually bless those who are around us when we pursue right understanding and right relationship with God. The psalmist speaks from what is likely their personal experience as a husband and as a father, which is not to say that only husbands and daddies get to bless those that are around them, but this is just a descriptive snapshot of what it can look like. The images that are being used here are truly beautiful. So the the wife as a fruitful vine, the children as these young olive plants all around the table together. The The fruitful vine means delicious wine right? Mature olive plants yield valuable oil. And both of these two things are critical to the flourishing life of the Israelite. So oil meant prosperity. It meant abundance. And wine meant joy and celebration. One of the happiest times of the year for me is Thanksgiving, and I'm pumped because it's coming up. It's one of the times of the year, by God's grace, we're able to just load up a table full of delicious food, way more than you can ever actually eat at a single setting. We have mulled cider, we have wine, we have jalapeno poppers, which are my favorite. I'm thinking about smoking some ribs this year because that just sounds good, like why not? And our family is all together and we sit down at this table together and the table's overflowing with abundant food and we're laughing, we're enjoying that food, we're enjoying one another. And in that moment, like, I am satisfied. That there is fullness in my heart and I am, by the grace of God, just happy. I think it's moments like this that the psalmist has in mind when they're reflecting on how God has blessed them in their reverence and their obedience to God, and the fruit of which is this picture of sweet fellowship of their family around this table. Now, it's important to note here that this is not uh, fear God and walk in his ways and you automatically have a perfect little family. Like, that's not what's being communicated here. The images that are used are very intentional. And this is what I mean. Uh, Between the moment when you plant a single grape seed in the ground to the moment where you pour a glass of wine, there's a lot of work that goes into that. There's a ton of faithful laboring that needs to be put in. Tons of soil tilling and watering and pruning and harvesting and then the process of fermentation until you get to experience, finally, at the end, the fruit of your labor. For oil, it's even more strenuous. Oil, uh, uh, olive plants are among the most difficult to cultivate and require tremendous attention and care. You actually don't even see any fruit on an olive tree until year seven or eight. And these slow-growing trees actually take up to 65 to 85 years to reach stable levels of fruitful production. Like, talk about a long game there. So this is not an instantaneous thing that you get to experience. The way that, that your wife 
and your children become fruitful and, and valuable. You get to experience that fruit for yourself is through years of careful cultivation and meticulous sacrificial laboring, which is born out of having a constant right understanding of God and continuing on faithful obedience to Him. That's where we get the wisdom to do it. That's the only thing that can sustain the decades of cultivation and labor that goes into raising a family so that one day, by God's grace, you can all sit around the table and experience this beautiful picture of fellowship where there is abundance, there is celebration, and there is community as fruit of all of that labor. And while this concept of reverence for God and faithful obedience to Him, bringing about blessing to those who are nearest you, it can be applied to anyone. There is a specific word to husbands and fathers here. So if you're a husband, if you're a father, I, I, I want to speak this directly to you. Do you want to bless your wife? Do you want to bless your children? You want to be given the wisdom and the strength to pour yourself out, to cultivate your household and see your wife and your children flourish? Then we must pursue God. We we need to be in constant reverence and worship of Him. We need to be in His Word to, to hear and obey the ways that He's calling us each to build our lives, build our house upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. And some of us, I know, like, you are faithfully doing this. And I want to encourage you to keep doing it. Press on for decades to go. Some of us are are really experiencing challenge in this space. You might feel like we've kind of taken ourselves out of the game a little bit. Maybe we've grown stagnant, where, where we're not really experiencing any reverence toward God. We're not really willing to hear and to obey Maybe others of us are are feeling just distant and cold, like our hearts are hard. We're going through some of the motions maybe, but we don't quite truly care. And so my exhortation to you as a father, as a husband who's struggling with this myself, is that it's time for us to get back into the game. It's time for all of us as husbands and fathers to lead our families in reverence and obedience. Not from a cold, pragmatic place, not because the preacher said so, but leading our families in joyful pursuit of God. Leading from a place of showcasing the reality of verse 1 as it's playing out in our lives. Where it says, blessed, right? Abundance, happiness comes to everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in His ways. So I say this to the husbands and the fathers in the room, but it also goes out to everyone else as well. As we finish up in these last verses, we see that it's not just individuals who are blessed and who experience happiness as a result of faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. It's not just spouses and children who get to benefit from it, not just roommates or siblings, but it's actually the entire community as a whole. Look at verse 5. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. One of the primary ways that Israel experienced blessing, uh, that happiness and that fullness, was actually through their experience as a community in Jerusalem. And this is why again and again they made this trek back to the city. Verse 5 says, The Lord bless you from Zion, which is synonymous with Jerusalem. 
Which means that as people of, of the, the people of Israel arrived at the gates of Jerusalem, that the city itself would be a means of blessing for the individual. It's another reminder for us that the faithfulness to Jesus and obedience to him is not just for the, for the individual. It actually radiates outward. And when a community comes together in right understanding of God and right relationship with God, it becomes a community that blesses anyone who steps through, steps through those doors. Mercy House, this is, is what we ought to want for ourselves as a community. Being a house of God that is overflowing with joy and happiness, experiencing blessing in our work, in our families, and just spilling out into anyone and everyone who comes through those doors into this building and into our community. This is one of my biggest prayers for us as a church as we navigate through this season of transition, that we would be able to be a group of people who, who rightly know God, but also who are faithfully following him, and, and out of that place of core spiritual health, that, that there would be a, a, a spring of blessing and fruitfulness in all different shapes, sizes, and varieties. Because the reality, Mercy House, is that the health of our church is not going to be increased simply by creating some programs or activities for people to participate in. The, the health of this church will not be determined by the size of the church, how many people we can pack into this room. It's not going to be in, in how good our giving is looking. It's not going to be determining some sort of system or structure. Like church health cannot be orchestrated like that. But the health of our church will largely be determined by the individual health, the individual blessedness of each of our members. And so Mercy House, if your heart's desire is for our church to be healthy, which I pray that that is a desire of yours then please take some time to consider this morning, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you living a life that communicates a reverence for God? Are we living lives that showcase obedience to God and his word? And how can we, if we're in that good place, be praying for and loving our brothers and sisters and, and encouraging them to also walk with God in such a way? So I want to say for the sake of your blessedness, for the sake of your happiness and your joy, for the sake of the happiness and joy of those around you, I want to encourage you, I want to implore you to lean into Christ this morning, to revere him, to walk in his ways and to build your life upon him. And then together as a community, we can sing along with the psalmist in Psalm 128. As we close, I want to say that one of the most important things that we take away from this uh, morning is that true happiness is found in God. True happiness is found in God. When I say true happiness, I mean a happiness that is not fleeting or flimsy, a happiness that, that is lasting and eternal. And this happiness is not found in any self-help book at the library. It's not going to be found in your career. It's not going to be found in any of your accolades. It's not found on some magical vacation or your children or in a new car or in a boyfriend or in a girlfriend. We see Jesus communicating this in, in, in later on in John 17. Jesus says in, in a prayer to his Father, in verse 3 it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, in order to fear God and to obey him, we must be able to know him rightly. 
And in this verse, what we're seeing is Jesus is confirming for us that true happiness, this eternal joy, eternal life is found in knowing him. And that's what we are all continually invited into. Not just a cold fear alongside some lifeless obedience, but a relationship of trust and of faith in Jesus, which produces the fruit of a blessedness and of joy. So this is an entire song that is dedicated to the gushing of how awesome it is to know Jesus. Because when we know Jesus, when we enter into relationship with Jesus, when we experience the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciliation with God, that changes everything. When we encounter Jesus and begin knowing him and trusting him and having reverence for him and heeding his words, we change radically. And there's blessedness in that. It's for our good, and there's happiness to be found. What's beautiful is that the power of the gospel is so potent that it seeps into every aspect of our lives, aspects that are likely super messy and super broken. And it will bless our marriages. It will bless our children. It will bless our friends. It will bless our roommates and our neighbors. It will bless our work. It will bless our employees. It will bless our coworkers. It'll bless our church. It'll bless our town, our community. It'll bless the world. But it begins right here at this table. One of the most sacred things that we do each Sunday is that we take communion with one another. We take communion out of obedience to Jesus, but we also understand that this table demands reverence. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The bread and the cup, it gives us an opportunity each week to respond with reverence and obedience to the gospel. As we remember the sacrifice of Jesus in order, to, in order to wash us of our sin and to make us holy and pure and giving us the righteousness that's required to have a relationship with God, without his willing sacrifice, Psalm 128 is completely inaccessible to us. It's still true, but without Christ, we will never taste the true joy and the true happiness that's being communicated in that psalm. The blessed, happy, joy-filled Christian life is made up of one reverent and obedient step at a time. And this is what we have an opportunity to do together this morning, is to take one of those steps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love for us. God, you are wholly outside of our league. We thank you that despite that, that you have come, that you are God with us, that you have paid the price to keep us yours, to make us yours. We thank you that we have access by faith to you. And I pray that that would happen this morning for those who have not experienced the joy and the happiness of relationship with you. Would you stir their hearts to respond and maybe their first moment of reverence and obedience to you. Pray for those of us who know you, that you would challenge us and sustain us to have a healthy, right view of you 
as we respond in worship, that there would be reverence, that there would be obedience, or not for the sake of obedience, but obedience because as you communicate your will to us, that that will is good for us, that it does bring joy and life and happiness and abundance. Lord, life is not easy, and we don't see this text as saying that it is, but we thank you that even in the most challenging, darkest, hardest moments, we have access to a place of joy that transcends any circumstance that this world can throw at us. I pray that we'd be able to experience that this morning. God, we love you. We thank you that you've loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.